Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhaṃ Dhammaṃ Sangam Namasāmi Some of you have been coming for the last couple of days and I've gotten to know you. And then today, uh, there must be about twice as many people have come. It's very nice to see the temple fill up on a Sunday morning. That means that you're off work, so this is your free time. You haven't been sent here as part of your training for your office. Or have you? If you have, then your employer is a very wise person. And if you're an employer, you could consider this for your employees. Unless they're from another tradition, another religion, then we wouldn't want to force people. So it's very nice to know that on your day off, you would be willing to come here and share this priceless contemplation of Dhamma with me. So on the topic of noble warming, first I'd like to start by telling you a little story. It's about, uh, from the Zen tradition, a monk came to the Zen master. This is a stereotype story where there's the master and the questioner who comes and asks, a kind of, not a koan, sometimes a koan, but a question that doesn't seem to have an answer. So a monk comes to the master and he says, Master, um, when in the heat of summer and the cold of winter, what should I do to avoid these? There's a pain of heat and the pain of cold. How can I avoid them? And the master says, to the monk, um, if you want to avoid them, you should go to the place where there is no heat and no cold. Then the monk says, Master, where is the place where there is no heat and no cold? So the, the master says, the place where there is no heat and no cold is in the winter, you let the cold kill you. And in the summer, you let the heat kill you. What does he mean by that? What does the master mean? In the winter, let the heat, let the cold kill you. And in the summer, let the heat kill you. But what he's referring to is what is the origin of the suffering of the monk that he has to avoid heat and cold. Heat and cold are nature, they're natural. 
So if he could overcome his perception of heat as heat, too hot, or cold as unbearable, too cold, then what's the problem? Because the heat doesn't think it's too hot. The cold doesn't think it's too cold. It's just doing what nature tells it. So it's only our perception is that this is suffering. We add our suffering onto the experience of natural phenomena, the elements, the fire element, which has temperature in it. So it's hot or cold. Now you can see from the state of the planet that nature has its ways of balancing itself. But we in our minds, we are creating a lot of suffering for ourselves because of our inability to kill this perception, this selfish view or this self-centered, egotistical way of receiving life the natural flow of life or the natural things that happen to us without an interpretation of I don't like it, I want to get rid of it, it's no good. So the monk was thinking in terms of perfect conditions. We want the perfect conditions to practice. Before we even get to the temple, we want perfect conditions in other ways. We want perfect happiness, the perfect partner, the perfect job, the perfect body, the perfect computer program, the latest model car, and all the other contraptions and concoctions that modern world can create for us. We want them. And this wanting, of course, is what we, we, we know the Buddha has pointed this out to us from from the beginning, that it's the wanting mind that creates our suffering, the craving mind. So if we could somehow bring that to a stillness, stilling that craving within us, then we could perhaps develop ourselves and grow to an extent where we wouldn't have to suffer because of heat or cold, because of loss of the loved, or painful conditions in the body, painful relationships, disappointments in our workplace, in our family life, or calamities, natural disasters, um, buildings crumple in the earthquake. We just had this a few days ago. And here we are living so near to the Um, what are they called? Is it the ring of fire, these Teutonic plates that at any moment there could be an eight-point-something earthquake on the Richter scale and cause terrible damage as we experienced almost three years ago from the tsunami and following that big earthquake. But then what are the minor... They are not minor, but we... Compared to an earthquake, they're... They're the private earthquakes that we experience in our heart. Not just if you have a heart attack. That's a kind of a, a breakdown. The, the Teutonic plates in the heart move and we can't breathe anymore. What other kind of attacks do we have in life? Panic attacks, 
from fear or from wanting something to, to the point where we become obsessed or being deluded and not knowing what we want and just being lost in life and causing harm to ourselves and other people because of selfishness, because of being wrapped up in our own lives and being driven by this wanting to get, wanting the things that are pleasant and trying to avoid the pain, the pain of heat, the unpleasantness of cold. So we, here we are speaking of heat. Today's not such a hot day, but we have an air-conditioned temple or an air-conditioned room. Mr. Lee told me this morning, if you don't mind me saying so, where are you, Mr. Lee? The owner of the, the temple here, that this room is air-conditioned because this is where all the young people come for Dhamma. <laughs> and they're used to air-conditioned offices, but the old, older folks they go upstairs to the sala, which is not air-conditioned. Natural ventilation. That's very considerate. But see how spoiled we are. This is... Um, the noble warming is what I'd like to talk about in comparison to global warming. Global warming means there's some problems in, in, the, in the planet, on the planet. Some serious things are happening. And things are out of balance and out of control. So what can we do? The ice caps are melting. It's getting hotter and hotter. The oceans are increasing in temperature. This is endangering the vitality and the productivity even of the farms, the fields, the land. The bee, bee colonies are collapsing mysteriously. Now there's a, already a name for it, bee colony collapse. And it's not, not easy to explain these things. There are a few theories, now they think it's some kind of a virus. But if the bees disappear, then you think, well, then we won't, we won't be able to afford honey. But it's not just about honey. Bees pollinate the crops. Bees are responsible for the pollination of crops that feed human beings, us. Where will the food come from if the bees disappear? I know that the cynical mind can say, oh, we can always manufacture the genetically or somehow we can simulate the, the chemistry and artificially pollinate the fields. There's only so much cleverness that we can manufacture to solve these problems. What about the polar bears that are uh, at the risk of extinction because they need the ice to survive and the ice is melting and they're getting stranded and have to swim impossible distances to hunt and survive. There are so many species coming, becoming extinct. In fact, we may become extinct. If this process continues, I happened to see this film by, that was produced by Al Gore. I suppose you could call it um, Global Warming 101. It's called An Inconvenient Truth. This is an inconvenient truth that we 
we may not be interested in, we don't want to know about, because it's frightening. We, you might think, I have enough problems in my personal life, I don't want to think about this. Besides, I can hear people saying, there's nothing I can do. What can I do? If the ice caps are melting, if the oceans are going to rise one or two meters, or however many meters they're supposed to rise, and inundate great swaths of land, what can I do? What can I do if Calcutta and New York and maybe even Singapore is suddenly overwhelmed by, by ocean water? So noble warming is our, our one of the alternatives. Instead of global warming, we can think about how can we cultivate noble qualities in our minds? It doesn't mean that, that we don't think about global warming, but to think about it, we have to be ourselves not so frightened that we get into a panic. If we get into a panic about it, or just averse, that I can't, it, it numbs a certain level, and think that there's no way that we can't follow the advice of the Zen master. We don't know how to kill, let the cold kill us, or let the heat kill us. We don't know how to dismantle this ego, or this wanting force that drives our lives. It's too difficult. So we say we just um, shutter our minds to the whole problem and go about as bus- business as usual. And I would like to suggest that instead of wor- we have to worry about our carbon footprint, we really do. And I think in Singapore there's there are quite a f- few initiatives from the government that I think maybe indirectly, like monitoring the usage of cars because making it expensive to drive in certain parts of town. If you use the road, you have to pay for it. Is it, what, is it a congestion tax, you call it? In England, they have this in London now. And this may have to be implemented more and more. Those are the, the jobs that governments can do. But then we ourselves have a a private government going on here. How can we restrain our minds? How can we restrain our needs, our senses? We worry about our carbon footprint in the sense of how do we consume energy and examine the ways in our lives that we're wasteful. So if you're using air conditioning, close the door. And if you then, somebody said, well, if we close the door, it's too cold. If it's too cold, then turn down the air conditioner. <laughs> this is common sense. I wonder if it isn't a kind of rebellious laziness. We just can't be bothered because we're so burdened. Life is so stressful that you don't want to use an extra milliliter of energy to turn down the air conditioner. We've become alienated from nature. So I believe that if we can somehow curb our wanting mind and restrain ourselves by following some kind of ethical standard 
that we hold more precious than all the things of the material world that could possibly make us think that we're happy, then if we took care of our ethical footprint, perhaps as a people, as a nation, as a country, as a continent, as a global community, little by little, if this became popular, then perhaps we could use what's left of the resources of the planet and the resources of our own heart. Because this is, there is a big landscape in here. There is an earth in the heart. This is a breathing organism just like this earth is a breathing, living organism that begs for peace and health, to be stress-free, to have not just the good air on the outside, but the good air inside. The good air of the mind. How foggy is your mind? How clouded and deluded? How heated up from anger? How contracted and tense from stress and worry? How agitated from restlessness and anxiety about all the different problems of daily life. You don't have to, this is just for you to reflect on, you don't have to tell me or talk to anybody else. Just I'm just suggesting ways that we can contemplate the, the melting of the ice caps that we experience inside here or in the mind and the danger that we are experiencing from within. And this is a moral kind of escalation of a fire, a burning. It's, it's a moral burning up. Because we've not been faithful enough, conscientious enough, conscious enough or aware enough of what we're doing to ourselves by following the desires following the ways of the world, the, the gains that we want from, or the pleasures that we want, or the praise and the status and the comforts and the wealth, the fame, the success, financial, commercial, professional, the vantage, psychological, like even, even to be a bully, just kind of one type of behavior which is not healthy. But then if you get to be more powerful than another person, you feel good somehow. You feel that you're in control. There are so many ways that we support and buffer habits of controlling, but we're not in control. And by trying to do this, we end up harming ourselves. Never mind not to speak of the harm we do to each other. I've been speaking in a lot of generalities. So now I would like to turn to more practical ways that we can develop the ethical footprint and this path of noble warming. Now you can all guess what I mean by noble warming. I mean the Eightfold Path. It's a noble Eightfold Path that upholds the cultivation and the perfection of virtue in 
body, body, speech, and thought. The training of the mind so that we restrain our senses, the sense faculties, our wanting for sights, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, beautiful ideas, or comforts, or beautiful experiences, or beautiful mind states. Even meditators can become very selfish and deluded about their practice, just wanting to meditate so you can experience bliss. But Nibbana, the experience of Nibbana, is not to be achieved, or the perfection of our moral qualities and our, the virtues, the goodness within us, does not come about just by avoiding pain and suffering. Quite the contrary. It comes with an all-embracing mind, a heart that is able to endure and bear with all the difficulties because of our love of truth. So we learn to accept the way things are. So by focusing our minds and stilling and restraining our faculties and becoming more and more peaceful, then we become more aware of the truth of the way things are and the wisdom in the heart is able to mature. If we cannot be kind to ourselves, we teach other people how to treat us. So this is a way of, if you have negative thoughts in your mind about yourself, then you're dealing in anger. You're not really taking responsibility. You're you just think you're such a hopeless, depressed person that you could never do what you need to do anyway? That selling out, instead of... The noble warming means always being true to and loyal to the Dhamma. We never forsake the Dhamma. So if we allow ourselves to believe those negative tapes in the mind, we're not taking responsibility for clearing out the mind and listening to the truth rather than believing all these lies so we can have a good excuse not to live the quality of life that we really want to live. That the truth within us, the goodness within us wants to live. The Buddha in us, the potential Buddha within each of us wants to live in that joy, simplicity and contentment. Like, that's what I love about the monastic life, is that we can't go out and buy things that we need. We just have to do, make do with what we have or what we get. And, for example, the robe. We have to wear the robe. Even if it's torn, we repair it. We don't just say, well, finished, it's torn, I'll get another one. And, but up to a certain point, then in the days of the Buddha the monks and nuns had to get their robes from the funeral pyre. They had to wear rags. And we also use that as a principle that we're willing to, we take up this practice of wearing rag robes. So it's made out of little patchwork of cloths according to a specific, very, very specific pattern and design, not haphazard. But if we have nine patches, then we get a new robe. We are so poisoned 
by our own ignorance. That it's very hard to be clear enough, honest enough, wise enough, patient enough to listen to the truth and try to begin from a place of honesty. First we start with baby ethical footprint. doesn't matter. We have to grow it. And we have to start now. This is how noble warming gets generated. Not from a, a generator like on a building. It begins from the generator in the heart. The heart. This is the generator of Dhamma in us. Within that, gentleness is not a weakness. Gentleness is a strength. If you do it too hard from an idea, you'll crack. You'll have a panic attack, a heart attack, a nervous breakdown or something. Or you'll just give up and say, it's too hard, I can't do it. I'll go practice yoga instead. Or I'll just go to the gym and be physically strong. But a real kindness, a real gentleness is a strength. To be realistic with your own limits and to realize that you have, we have so many habits, a lifetime of habits to do things without taking responsibility, to act impulsively, to be impatient, to be angry at others, to blame the other guy for your misery. Then it's very difficult to start a new way of treating ourselves and other people. Then that means we have to be not too austere. We practice a certain level of austerity, but not in the sense of being too hard on on ourselves and bullying ourselves instead of bullying someone else. You start to oppress yourself. This is a violence. We don't want to do it the way of violence. Look at the results of our violence to the planet or our violence to ourselves in our lives. What's been the result of that? Just for you to contemplate. We have to give up what we don't need. How many air conditioners do we need? What about a fan? Isn't a fan enough? How many cars do we need? How many parking lots? Why do we need so many parking lots? Why do we need so many roads? They're building more and more roads because there are more and more cars. But can we not find more efficient ways of travel? Well, I don't want to share. I don't want to carpool. Then we have to self-sacrifice. We have to give up our privacy to share the car with somebody who may not use deodorant. So this is inconvenient. We don't want to experience their body odor or some silly reason like that. And it's the same thing with the wanting mind. It's not enough that now we reach the age of having cell phones. Now we have to have, everybody has to have their own cell phone. Then you have to have the latest model cell phone. Now that model is no good. We need one that has a camera that can download a file, all kind of whatever you download. (laughs) Why don't we download Dhamma? If you want to make the ethical footprint, download Dhamma. You don't need a cell phone. What do we need in our lives? You don't, you, you don't need 
all these contraptions around you, all these different kinds of shortcuts, abbreviations, instant things that will make us feel good about ourselves and make us happy. Much of it we don't need. What we do need is we do need some kind of peace in the heart, feel good about ourselves, to reflect on our actions and think, yes, I haven't harmed anyone today. I didn't tell any lie. I have been honest with myself and others. I've tried to help other people. I've kept my mind pure. I live a clean life. I, I feel happy. I don't need anything. I don't need to go here, there, and everywhere. I don't need an entertainment. I feel happy enough to be alone with myself. How many of us can sit still for half an hour without sending somebody an SMS or making a phone call or um, lighting a cigarette or having a cup of coffee or going to look in the mirror and see how many new wrinkles you have? What are we doing? We can't even live simply anymore. We're so complicated. So this is, the meaning of austerity is not to whip yourself, punish yourself, and walk on hot coals. It's not like that. It's to give up what we don't need so that we can find happiness in the most simple ways, in being with the present moment, naturally, simply, purely, wholesomely, and realize the truth of Nibbana. My goodness! What greater thing can a human being accomplish? And this is done, I've already mentioned, with non-anger, non-violence. So, akroda and abhihingsa. Not oppressing yourself. You've got to download Dhamma. This is nonsense. That's, a pr- that's not Dhamma. If you act from anger, then how can you be practicing non-anger? If people who go around preaching any kind of religion, any kind of fundamentalism is an oppression. It's a violence. People stand on the corner and follow you with they want to give you a Dhamma book or a religious book. This will do you a lot of good. But inside you feel so contracted and nervous and tense and then you don't know what to do with this book. How can you come and sit in front of the Dhamma and realize the Dhamma within you when it's forced down your throat like that. You just end up being so averse that you don't want to come near. You run the other direction. So again, we have to be gentle with ourselves and with others. Don't go around telling your family members what they should do in order to be a good person. You should be a Buddhist or you should go to the temple or... What are you doing? You come here and listen to a Dhamma talk, but you're thinking about something else. Well, when is she going to finish anyway? (laughs) You're meditating, but your mind is thinking about what you had for dinner, and why didn't you go to that other restaurant? And or or you're planning the next meal. Maybe I should try that new coffee bar. So dishonest. Then you go around telling everyone, I spent so many days in the, in the temple and I meditated and I attended retreats with this teacher. And, you know, I get the, the sheets of the re- registration before people come on a retreat. 
most of the retreat centers ask you to fill in this form and it says, who have you meditated with in the past? And some people love to list every single teacher they ever sat a retreat with and how many years they've been meditating. There was one woman who was happy to tell me that she'd been meditating for 17 years. I said, fine. Where's your breath? Oh, well, I have a very stiff neck and I, I can't even concentrate on my breath. 17 years she's been medit- going to retreats. It's meaningless. She couldn't even find her breath. And her body was so tense, so contracted with tension that she had chronic problem in the neck, unable to relax the body. She was like this, and very skinny, anorexic. This is not Dhamma. You just, you try to make an impression on yourself, I'm a good meditator, on other people, on the teacher, on the temple wallas, on, on anything. You just want to look good. Or you say, I'm a generous person, and then when you sit down in the Dhamma hall, you, you see somebody else has a nicer cushion, so you grab it. Then you tell you, oh, I give dana to the temple. But small acts of kindness you couldn't perform. What's the meaning of that? If we can just tell ourselves what we tell other people, we will be ashamed to hear those messages. Or we'll, we'll feel so oppressed by our own ideals because we can't live up to them. To be kind and gentle and to, if we're doing things that make us unhealthy, to be with yourself at night and you have to look back at your day and think, how did I live my day? What did I do? You can feel some sense of peace. You know, there was an example in the United States of the abortion right to life activists who actually went out and murdered two doctors in a clinic where they were performing abortions because they were taking the life of a human being. Then they killed the doctors. And these these people are agitating about the right to life. So, so much hypocrisy. That's why it's so important to study our minds. If we study our minds, then we can see where we are. We can see what kind of head of state there is, what's going on. That's what we need to do, examine, investigate. If we don't do that, if we don't see the root of the problem, this wanting and craving mind, then we will never be able to go to the place where we can let the cold kill us and the heat kill us so that cold and heat will no longer be a problem. Because we continue to be ruled by our selfishness. Then we cannot practice noble warming based on this selfish mind. We have to make that ethical footprint. Think about not just rescuing the world. We start by rescuing ourselves. This teaching is not just for people that practice meditation. It's not just for people that come to Fo Ernsche 
temple, the temple of thanksgiving on a Sunday afternoon, is not just for people in Singapore, it's not just for people in Asia. It's a universal responsibility. If we can really practice this, then think about the power of our universal practice. If all of us just followed the five precepts without any hypocrisy, that in itself would bring enough noble warming to tip the scales of the global disaster that is at our doorstep. So I thank you for your attention today. Sadhu, sadhu. Would anyone like to ask any questions? Any questions? Oh, does anyone have a comment? Okay. Like um, having kids, right? Because like our earth is like being sort of overpopulated. Overpopulated. Right. But then again, as Buddhists, we believe in rebirth, right? <laughs> I mean. Yeah, so I was thinking like, okay, we can be conservative in the sense that, okay, maybe we can adopt kids, like kids that, you know, they don't have a home. But the thing is, how about, I mean, like being that need to be reborn, right? I mean, if you don't have kids, then we adopt kids, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, like some religion, they say it's, 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 it's like given, you know, we have to give birth, we cannot stop the natural process. So it's like, you know, are we like, if, if you don't have kids, are we like stopping natural process that, you know, we have to... <laughs> I, d- I don't think that you can answer this question for everyone. I think each person has to deal with this in their own hearts. It's a personal ethic. If you feel very much the, the wish to be a parent and, and you have the means to parent a child well, the um, personal stability, of course, some parents think they're wonderful parents, but they're not. That's, it's not about that. Then, certainly in view of global population, overpopulation, you might want to consider how many children you're going to have. If you have one child, it, it will replace you. Um, but we ourselves, as, as a race or humankind, We have to consider this problem, but I think if we don't consider it, nature will consider it for us. I think the most important thing, more important than trying to deal with the mathematics of that, is deal with the ethics of that. Instead of trying to worry about all the beings that need to be reborn and you want to offer them the opportunity, why don't you just focus on your own actions as a human being and make sure that you are devoted to kusala kamma rather than akusala, the pure, wholesome action, so that you're not um, somehow generating more unskillful things in the world for yourself and for others, and more unskillful karma, which would, might lead to the need for a, not such a good rebirth. You see, and just... Be concerned, be responsible as an adult for what you yourself are doing with your life rather than 
theoretically trying to figure out some formula of how you can accommodate all these beings that are waiting to be reborn. I don't think this is necessarily a useful... That's my opinion.